Welcome to Create Photography, this is Daniel. In today's episode, I will have a conversation with Laura El-Tantawi. Laura is an award-winning British-Egyptian documentary photographer, bookmaker and mentor. She is also a Canon ambassador. Born in the UK, Laura studied in Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the US and the UK. All right, Laura, welcome to Create Photography. I look very much forward to speaking with you today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Great, great. So, Laura, you were born in the UK. I was curious, did you also grow up in the UK? Um, no, I did not. I grew up between Cairo and Saudi Arabia. Okay. And so, and I. I read on your website um, and elsewhere, you, you studied in many different places. So you studied in Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the US and UK. <laughs> and so having grown up and gone to school um, at university in Switzerland, but also in the US, I've, I found the differences in the education systems between at least those two countries quite, quite extraordinary. Um, so I was just kind of curious, you know, having obviously with your experience of having um, studied in so many different places. Um, yeah. How have you experienced the different education systems? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a good question because in every one of these countries, the system was completely different. And I think um, very much reflective of the political atmosphere, because as an Egyptian, everything is political for me. So I always yeah. kind of <laughs> look yeah. at things from that point of view. Mm -hmm. But certainly in Egypt, it was an educational system which depended a lot on memorizing and not really questioning things. Hmm. This is the way it is, and you just need to learn it that way, and that's it. Um, in Saudi Arabia, there was a big religious aspect, obviously, to the education. So I remember we had to take a break between classes and, and pray, you know, if you, you could pray and and that sort of thing. So religion was constantly infiltrating the, mm. edu the educational um, process. And then, you know, once I went to the U.S., there it was just like, you know, there's no limit. You know, you can. It's basically that old um, American stereotype that you can reach your dreams. This is a place where dreams get realized. <laughs> yeah. And I did actually find that it was, you know, I, I really found myself. In the U.S., because I, when I moved there, I was studying computer science. That's kind of how hmm. I, I started my career early on. And then I was like, "This is not me." You know, I don't think in binary numbers. So I began studying business, and that also wasn't me. I actually failed accounting because <laughs> I'm, you know, although I love math, but accounting is a completely yeah, different. It's world. very different. Yes, <laughs> completely right. And then I really began to have a moment of truth where I was asking myself. What am I passionate about? What do I really want to do? Mm -hmm. And I don't think that would have happened had I not had that experience of being in the US and being exposed also like everybody around me is doing stuff because they wanted to do it. Whereas I was doing things because my family thought this was the right path for me. So it was really the start of the creation or deliberation of me and my personality and really realizing what I wanted to do as a person. And um, in the when I came to the UK, eventually I came to do a master's degree. But even 
between the US and the UK, yes, I did find the educational system was different, but I don't think so starkly different than my other experiences in, you know, between Egypt and Saudi and mm-hmm. then the US. Mm-hmm. So that, so in Egypt and, and Saudi Arabia, uh, <laughs> I paraphrase a little bit, obviously much, much more narrow and, and you're not, not open in a certain sense, I guess, or you can't quite, as you mentioned, you can't question things perhaps, or not supposed to (laughs) yeah exactly you're not supposed to because this is the way it is like in saudi arabia this is the way it's written in scriptures and the quran so you don't really question it you just do Mm -hmm. it and in egypt it was just like in everything because again um it's a country where you grow up with everything being dictated to you you're being told what to do Mm -hmm. constantly you're being told um also that you're constantly being assessed by the people around you like i can't tell you how many times growing up you'd hear uh people say oh what are people gonna think what are people gonna think about Mm. you doing this what are people gonna think about you doing that so your life is constantly constantly you feel like it's under the microscope and you're constantly Mm -hmm. having to perform in a way because you can't really do what you want to do because what will people think um and i think all these things are very um tied to our political structures mm-hmm. um and just being a people that you know we grew up under dictatorships one dictatorship after the other after the other so mm-hmm. you know you don't really have any room to be who you want to be because you're constantly right. being told this is how you should exist mm-hmm. hmm. yeah that yeah that, that's that's very interesting and and do you think you know since the arab spring i mean how have things changed maybe in Maybe Egypt is obviously where you, you, you know, you, you're native from Egypt and, and, and the UK, but, um, is, do you feel like things have changed a little bit since then or? I think things have changed a lot in, um, in the Middle East. I mean, I'll start with Egypt specifically, but, you know, you look at Egypt and the political system hasn't really changed very much. It's deviated in a way, um, but, but specific things that people were really asking for, like breath, freedom, social justice. This is what people were chanting in Tahrir Square. Mm -hmm. And those things haven't really shifted, but the big shift that has happened in the way people think, and I think in the way that governments think, and a lot of the the restrictions on free speech and stuff that we see happening in Egypt right now are happening because the government realized that when people speak up, they can't control them. Mm -hmm. And, from the other side of that people realize that they have the power to speak up that you know we do have um the power to change our faith because nothing is really you know written in stone we can actually change the course of our future and i think that's changed and even though you don't see protests anymore any of that but you do see um a much more empowered younger generation so the generation that grew up with Tahrir Square, you know, they were teens or much younger at that age and 10 or 11 years on, they are a lot freer than Mm -hmm. my generation was at their time. And I think that is a consequence of the revolution. Mm -hmm. And a lot of things in terms of um, women's rights and women's movements, there's been a lot of change in that sense in Egypt. Um, A lot of things, people speaking out, you know, certain laws that are happening to give women rights that weren't there uh, before the revolution. So I definitely think there's been a lot of positive changes, but you know, there's still a lot more changes yeah. that need to happen, but um, that's going to take time. 
Yeah. As for the rest of the Middle East, yeah, I mean, you see what's happening in places like Saudi Arabia, for example, and other countries. I really don't think that would have happened had you not seen all these changes in the Middle East. Again, it was, it was, um, it was an awakening for the public in all of these countries, but also for the government, because the governments realized there was this wave that was moving from one country to the next. And we saw, you know, sweep through Tunisia, Egypt, Yemen, Libya, and then it was kind of starting to sweep through the Gulf, but they very quickly controlled it. But, you know, even in these countries, which are stereotypically, you know, oil rich, you know, people mm -hmm. have lots of money. But even there, there's also populations that are underrepresented, uh, populations that don't have money, they're poor. Mm -hmm. And um, those were also populations that really wanted to speak up. So I think all of these shifts that we're seeing, I really think are a consequence of the movements that we saw in 2011. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Thanks for that summary. Well, and you know, I haven't, I haven't visited that, that area. So, so it's really, you know, you only read about it. So it's very different, right. From, from hearing mm -hmm. from somebody who's, who knows the area and has, has visited it. And, and, um, and so, but you feel like obviously there is still, obviously still lots lots of work to be done but 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 it seems to be moving in the hopefully in the right direction at least yeah. at some levels <laughs> yeah absolutely i think you know i remember reading an article i think it was in time magazine they had a cover maybe like very quickly after the revolution i want to say like in 2012 or 2013 where they had a cover that said the revolution that wasn't and they were basically saying that egyptian revolution basically it's almost like it didn't happen, like nothing has changed. Hmm. And I thought it was such a huge um, punch in the gut, really, for people, for my people, that you're saying that the people that died, the people that lost their eyesight because they were being shot and targeted by police, people, you know, all these things that happened were for mm -hmm. nothing. And I felt like it was such a quick assessment, again, by hmm. the West saying, you know, um, denying the people, I think, Denying the people the power of a movement mm -hmm. that we all know when revolutions happen, they don't just happen overnight. They do take right. time and they, they do take years, especially when you've had such strong regimes over the years. You know, it, it does take time. So I do think a lot of positive has happened, but um, there's a lot more that needs to happen. Mm -hmm. And and do you do you have time to visit, or have you are, are you regularly visiting the, the Middle East? Um, yeah, I visit all the time. I mean, okay. Egypt specifically, I go a few times a year. I've already been maybe like two or three times this okay. year, and I'm about to go over um, Christmas. So yeah, I, I mean, oh, nice. my family's there, my parents are there, so I maintain a strong connection. Yeah. The rest of the Middle East, uh, when there's an opportunity, I do go. So I was in Saudi Arabia earlier this year. For an exhibition i think this was in march or april okay. um i've been to dubai a few times you know if there's an opportunity to go i'm always open to exploring yeah. and and seeing yeah. what's out there great and i think it's important to be connected as well the region oh yeah yep yep so so you talked a little bit about your studies um computer science accounting yeah. <laughs> business um what so tell me a little bit more what else did you study you mentioned a master's in england um yeah just curious. um i actually so uh when i when i eventually like found myself i um i studied journalism and political science so i was doing dual okay. with 
the aim of being a newspaper writer because I always had a passion for writing, always felt like yep. I could trust myself in writing much better than I could um, in words or in, you know, things like this, like what we're doing now. Um, so I eventually decided that this would be a right fit for me. And then mm -hmm. photography was just something I did. I thought it would be fun, but then I absolutely fell in love with it. Mm -hmm. um, when I came to the UK, I studied, um, I wanted to do a master's degree, but I felt like I had already had enough practical experience as a photographer that I didn't really want to do a master's in photography. So I did an, um, a master's in art and media practice. So okay. it was, you know, you could kind of define it the way you wanted to define it, depending on what you wanted to get out of the degree. Yep. So you kind of structured your research the way you wanted. So I moved more towards sort of like a fine art direction. Okay. But I always, you know, stayed very close to documentary and, and photojournalism yep. um, in my practice. That's that's great to hear, and and you know, well, I, I want to talk more, of course, about your work as well. Um, but I I kind of do see that a little bit that you you know you have that documentary obviously theme, mm -hmm. but then there is I see a very I see it at least I don't know if it's correct, but you know an artistic element to it as well. Mm -hmm. um, but um, yeah, so so you started your career as a newspaper photographer in the U.S. Um, so. Can you tell me a little bit more about that time and w which newspaper maybe did you work for and how how did yeah. that start? Well, back in back in that day, it was it was the thing that you did after you graduated. So whether you were um, graduating as a writer or as a photographer, the the right way to do it was to get an internship um, or like an apprenticeship. They say I think in the UK where yeah. you go and do some training at a newspaper for a few months and then you kind of do another one and you begin the practical experience where you're getting immersed in the professional world. So that is kind of like was the right thing to do for, for people at the time. So I, um, I did a, um, no, I actually went straight into a newspaper job. My first one was at the Milwaukee um, Journal Sentinel. Mm. Um, in Wisconsin, which is very close to Chicago. Yep. And um, it was a, an incredible experience for me because um, I was very young. I had just graduated and I was working with senior staff, people who were like in their 40s, 50s. They had an immense amount of experience. So, I, I mean, you know, every day for me was an education. I was surrounded by people that I was learning from on a daily basis and they were incredibly humble and supportive. And they were always really excited about the young person that's coming to join them for a year. This was like always something that the whole team looked forward to. And it was part of, you know, they really supported that person. So that was me. And part of that deal was I would be a photographer, but I would also work on the picture editing desk, um, I think, like once a week. It was really, really um, great experience for me. And then immediately after that, I worked at another newspaper, uh, which was the total opposite. It was a much younger team, everybody around my age. And it was just a very, very um, different kind of structure. But what was really great and very valuable, and I think what really made me the photographer that I am today, is that newspaper experience. Because mm -hmm. no day is like the other. Um, <laughs> you come in not really knowing what kind of day you're going to have. You don't know what assignments you're going to have. You have to come in prepared and ready to sort of take on the day and to go out and make images and produce 
regardless of the situation. There's no excuse. You can't make mm. any excuses. You have to be very professional. You have to arrive on time, present yourself um, in a good way because you're, you're representing also the publication yep. you're working for. Um, a lot of times you would go and accompany uh, reporters as well. So you'd work together um, on a story. And um, yeah, it was fantastic. And I think one mm. of the best experiences for me from that was working on this extensive six months uh, project about obesity in America where I learned so much. I was working with two mm. of the really good reporters at, uh, at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel and we did it for six months and you know did everything from going in to photograph uh, people who are doing uh, uh, or they call gastric bypass surgeries yep. where they're basically yep. that and people who are then dealing with the constant of losing the weight but they have all the extra skin and then they have to do plastic surgery so it was an education but it was also um a very human story because you really talk to people about the struggles they had how society perceived them the things that people would you know tell them when they're walking on the street and it was basically my job to kind of illustrate that and put it in images um so i think it also found it also helped me realize what kind of photographer i Mm-hmm. Um, and I always knew that I had a passion for photographing people and telling, um, sort of human interest stories, you know, stories that mm-hmm. were just about humanity in general. Right. And, and that's an interesting lead into my next question, because I wanted to talk about one of your, um, perhaps earlier projects, um, but, a, but a long form project actually, um, the shadow of the pyramids, it, I read it started in 2005 and you ended it in 2014. So really a long, t- uh, you know, a very long time span. Um, yeah. And so I'm, I'm very fascinated by, by projects in general. I think it's great to do uh, projects for photographers, but I, it sounds like obviously your, your obesity um, six, you know, was six months, but you know, still a longer than your typical newspaper assignment. Um, is that kind of what, inspired you to to maybe to to pursue those longer form you know human interest stories for example for, for example such as um shadow of the pyramids is that a yeah i think for sure uh doing those kinds of stories um and realizing that the longer the time you invest in something researching it photographing it and all of that um, the more you learn, but also the more committed you are to it and the better the quality of the photograph because, because of all these things, you're emotionally invested in something because you're emotionally invested, you know, that, that is very much part of the images well that you end up capturing. Um, I think it was definitely a journey to, towards, um, working on in the shadow of the pyramids. I mean, the main, main incentive for me to start that project was the um, unexpected passing of my grandmother, my maternal grandmother. Mm. And that's when I decided I need to come back to Egypt and be with my family and uh, just see, you know, just see if I can be a photographer um, here and see if I, I can tell stories and, you know, what that's going to be like. So that was really the main incentive. It was very personal for me. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that personal element is something that's really stayed with me. Um, so basically when I went back, I just, I didn't have a particular idea of what I wanted to do. I know that I was trying to approach some magazines and publications to do some work for them while I'm in Cairo. 
but actually none of that was really working out for me. So, um, I just kind of like started to take pictures of my surroundings. You know, my grandfather was quite ill at the time. So I began to photograph him as well. I asked his permission and I asked my family if I could photograph him. And in the meantime, I was also photographing around the streets of Cairo. And it was a way for me to become familiar again with a country that I knew in my heart, but had also changed over the period of nearly 10 years that I had been away. So it was kind of just like having this conversation with the city the people the place and the camera was was my way of doing that um and i think you know i really believe that all the different bodies of work i've done are very important and i'd like to say they're all at the same level for me emotionally but of course there's always something very special about the first one mm-hmm. and in the shadow of the pyramids was really the first one you know i learned um i discovered sort of who I want to be as a photographer. I was exploring different ways of storytelling. And I think through in the shadow of the pyramids and this period between 2005 to 2014, I found myself and I found my voice as a photographer. So it's very important for me because this this is when I changed and this is when I became who I am, the photographer I am. And I developed a sense of confidence that I didn't have before. So it, it kind of, um, yeah, it just, it, it formed who I am in, in many mm-hmm. ways on a personal level and on a professional level as well. And, and this, and thanks for sharing this. And, and so this work eventually culminated in a book by the same name. Um, and I, I noticed there's a, there's a version one and now there's also a version two. Is, is that correct? Yeah. So, um, you know, bookmaking seemed to be an important part of the journey of photographers that you know um i admired and photographers i was reading about and it felt like that book journey was something that i really wanted to um to sort of add to my own photographic journey so from the very beginning i was hoping that i'd be working on a book and then as the years went on i was pretty confident okay now i'm really i'm onto a book and that just became the build-up to um to it and it always had the same title the shadow of pyramids from the very beginning um yeah i kind of forgot your question sorry oh no no no. Um, uh, sorry (laughs) yeah because we we were just talking about bookmaking and and you know so obviously this this work kind of culminated into a first i presumably your first book as well um and and now there's also a version two um is is that correct yeah yeah so that's an interesting story because with the first book Um, I didn't know anything about book publishing or any of that. I knew about taking pictures, but bookmaking and book publishing is something I knew nothing about. So how do I publish a book? So I was approaching publishers and there was some interest, but I got a bit frustrated with that process because, you know, I realized it was my first book. I felt a bit insecure. Um, I had so many questions and they weren't really being answered within sort of the time frame that could tame my sense of anxiety at the time so i was like well you know i think i'm gonna work on this on my own i'm gonna self-publish it because anyways if you know i don't know how much you know about the economics of book publishing these days but (laughs) most book publishers will ask you to pay for the book anyways Hmm. i felt as i'm paying either way then i might as well just risk it and do it and control the whole process and and just do it my own way so i self-published the first book and that was in 2015 when it came out 
only made 500 copies and it sold out very quickly. And I'm very proud to say that it, um, it resonated with a lot of people. And I'm really yeah. happy to hear that because that's not what I expected. You know? That's wonderful. Yeah. And then I never thought I would do another book, the same project. You know, I felt like um, if it's done, it's done. And then I move on to something else, which I very much did. But then 10 years afterwards, looking back at um, the narrative around the revolution in Egypt and how it was being completely whitewashed and a lot of details and people who were affiliated with the movement and things that, you know, truth that now were being reverted to, you know, lies and facts mm -hmm. that were now being twisted. I started to look at my images differently and I was like, well, I took these images during this moment of euphoria where it seemed like as Egyptians, we were united to achieve one thing, but now we've become completely polarized, completely split. Some people believe that that movement was chaos and it created chaos for the country. And some people don't even call it a revolution anymore. They just call it like, you know, they call another um, movement a revolution, which is the date that our current president, CC, kind of basically took over in 2013. Mm -hmm. So I began to question my own images and what value they still hold. And in that sense, I felt like, okay, I feel like I would be really interested to create a book now, 10 years on after the revolution, looking at giving a different meaning to the same images mm -hmm. um, and, an, and a meaning that also anchors it in the reality of what is happening today, the whitewashing all of this all of these things that are happening so that was really the only reason i decided to make that second book um, mm. um it's only because I, I felt like i wanted to express something about that moment and did you and, and unfortunately i haven't seen that yet in a physical copy but is um did you then um add um prose or text to 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 kind of explain some of that or um no i'm i didn't um i okay. basically um Text is an interesting thing in books because I think people read little bits of text, but they don't read too much text. I right. think <laughs> right? They can find it overwhelming. Yeah. So I basically included some of the same texts that were in the first book, uh, but I changed the structure so it all came at the end okay. of of the second uh, of the ten year. It's a ten year anniversary edition, so it came at the very end of the book. Um, but I didn't really. I think I I included. Uh, I included a foreword at the beginning, which basically, I don't even remember what it says, but it was intended to honor um, the spirit of the initial revolution and um, basically saying that, you know, this book kind of looks at things differently, but it was like four, four very small lines that were written at the beginning mm. of the book, not like okay. a major. Text. Yep. Yep. So, so Laura, you have, Many it seems like we have many long form projects, and another one um, is called "I'll Die for You." Um, mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit more about that project? Yeah, so "I'll Die for You" is um, is the one I'm still working on now. Okay. Actually, it's been a really long time. <laughs> but um, so in in 2008, I went to India because a close friend of mine, photographer, was living there, and she invited me to go and visit and. India had always been like a destination I really wanted to go to, you know, as a photographer, you know, and I think especially like studying photography, always see so many rich images um, from India. So it felt like, you know, I really want to go and see what that's like for myself. 
I did, I, I went in 2008 as a tourist. I think I was there for maybe like a week or 10 days and um, explored India. And, you know, India and Egypt have a lot in common in terms of our colonial histories and stuff. So when mm -hmm. I was there, I felt like there were so many deja vus. You know, I, hmm. a lot of times I would look around and I'd be like, is this Cairo or is this New Delhi? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I felt a sort of sense of affinity and a connection to India that I didn't expect, to be honest. And I felt also like it's a country where there's a lot of poverty, but it's a country where people wake up every day wanting to work very, very hard in order to survive and put food on the table, mm -hmm. which is exactly the same way in Egypt. Um, so that resonated with me as well. And then when I came back a few months afterwards, I came across an article about um, this epidemic of farmer suicides in India. That I think at that point it had been like 25 years and over that period more than a thousand farmers had killed themselves so they were really like um they were really overwhelming statistics um and it really hit me because that you know that's not the impression of india that i had when I was there it's not a country where um i could see people taking their own lives in that way so i became very curious about it and um you know deep in, you know my own grandfather was a farmer as well and he died mm -hmm. when I was born. So I kind of like, I was like, I wonder what he would, would have done. So I decided to go back to India and really just to meet the farmers, of course to take pictures, but I didn't have any idea what kind of pictures or anything. Um, mm -hmm. The way I, I tend to work is I, I do enough to understand the issue, but I really like to arrive in a place and let, you know, the people, the atmosphere, the mood, the light, the breeze, everything really influenced what I to do but mm -hmm. i don't really preempt images before i go somewhere or do a yep. lot of research right mm. so anyhow i went and um yeah it was basically working with um a translator and we went and we met the families and that's where it began and after i got back i thought that this this was it you know india's beginning and the end then i sat with the work for a bit showed it to people, and i realized actually um, it's beyond India because the main factor is in India was climate change. It's really affecting farmers and it's affecting mm -hmm. them in the sense that they're borrowing money from rich villagers and their community or they take what they're called microloans or microdebts from the bank to invest in the land by buying seeds or fertilizer or digging a well or something and mm -hmm. in the hope that the crops will produce, they sell them and they repay the loan. But because of these unpredictable weather patterns that we were already seeing back in 2008, that wasn't happening. Mm. Um, so they ended up owing huge amounts of money. Um, so I then decided that I wanted to explore other countries and see how, you know, farming or the identity of the farmer, the survival of the farm is being challenged, one, by these drastic weather patterns, but maybe by some other um, country-specific issues. And the first place I decided to go to was my own grandfather's village in Egypt. And I photographed there, looking specifically at overpopulation and how farming is now seen as like an old um, tradition, something that people maybe don't look down on a little bit. Um, and, you know, they want to be traders. They want to go to the city. They sell their land or they build a home. They want to have you know a place for their family to live. But nobody wants to do farming. Um, and then I went to many countries. So I've been to West Bank, looking at 
um, you know, political occupation, how that when you eliminate the identity of the farmer and strip land away from him or her, then what's left? And in the UK, um, I recently photographed looking at the impact of Brexit, COVID on farmers. And of course, the common denominator everywhere is, is weather, changing weather. Mm-hmm. But then I'm really interested in these country-specific issues as well. Mm-hmm. So it's been a long, it's been a really long journey. Um, and, you know, I tend to self-fund most of my work, but, um, and I'm not rich. I just work some other jobs. <laughs> <laughs> want to make that very clear but i think it's important for people to yep. know also yep. that you know even if that you have to find ways to do what you're really passionate about mm-hmm. and i've always worked a second job next to being a photographer in order to help me do what it is that i want to do mm-hmm. and to give me freedom to do that mm-hmm. um so yeah it's been a sorry it's been a really long answer that i gave you no thing. no this is a wonderful answer uh, and and really fascinating and, and also how you you know, you started out with maybe an idea, concept. Obviously, you studied that problem, but then you kind of let let things happen, and and I guess let the project grow in, into a. And maybe there, it, it seems to be right that there is. Maybe let me ask you this. I shouldn't say it seems to be. Um, did, did you then it for this project? You know, as you were visiting other countries, you you told the story in India that there was. You know, there were the mass suicides of the farmers and so forth, um, obviously climate-related issues that prompted some of that, uh, financial issues, obviously, as well. Um, have you seen these threats really going throughout to, you know, have you seen those things throughout uh, the, the countries you visited um, as you well? You mean specific with, uh, with climate change? Yeah, or just maybe, um, yeah, it's kind of like these, you know, existential threats. I mean, even, I mean, obviously committing suicide is probably an extreme and you may have not seen that in other, in other countries. I was more meaning, um, yeah, kind of a common thread of the underlying issue, I guess. <laughs> yeah, um, I yeah. Def- I've definitely seen okay. it everywhere I've, I've been. Um, okay. And I always ask about it because it's not exactly a topic that people might jump to. People always want to talk about the government. Oh, the government isn't doing this. The government isn't yep. doing that. But then when you investigate deeper and you're like, have you noticed that maybe the seasons are not the same? Or how has that impacted you? And for example, in Peru, I remember like a farmer I was talking to, a guy maybe, in, he's, he basically started crying because he mm. was talking about how he's seeing um, the weather change and how he can't plant the crops the way he planned them because seasons have shifted so we can't really anticipate how things are gonna happen um and he was crying because he was saying i don't know how long i have um in terms of time that i can sustain doing this anymore because it's become so so difficult Mm. and this has been a very common narrative all the places too is just that people deal with it differently but i think it is climate change of course but it's also mental health and how these things are really impacting people emotionally. Because for us, you know, we live in cities, buy our stuff from the store. We're not connected to the land in the way that farmers are connected to the land. Mm-hmm. For them, this is not a job. This is this is who they are. This is their life. This right. is what they wake up to every single day to do. So if they can't survive off of it, then it just means they have no life. That really impacts 
their mental health, their family life, their image in the village um, or in the community. In some cultures, for example, in India, you know, the farmer has to pay a dowry for his daughter to get married. And if he's known in the village that he owes a lot of money, then his daughter's not going to get married. She's not going to get any suitors. So he feels like destroying, you know, his, his children's life as well by bringing mm -hmm. on the shame on them. So it's a huge, huge burden that mm -hmm. farmers are carrying on their shoulders every single day and every single morning. And that's why it was very important for me from the beginning to put a face on the issue, to make sure that I show the faces of the farmers that I anchor it in reality, that it doesn't matter how far away from you this happens geographically, but this is a human face and this is someone's mm -hmm. eyes. You're looking straight into them and this is a real story and this is what happened first. So, you know, uh, I was trying to show it in the way that it really impacted me um, as much as possible and this tends mm -hmm. to be the way that I really try to work. I listen to the stories and then I try to create an image that emotionally evoke what I felt when I was listening listening mm -hmm. to the story mm -hmm. and I hope that that then resonates with people when they when they see the photo. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, thanks thanks for sharing this. I I'd, I'd like to talk to you about um your recent book release called lol <laughs> yeah um so this this work was conceived uh over the month um of COVID, or months and years i guess <laughs> and um yeah can you just tell me a little bit more about that project yeah so it hasn't been published yet um, okay okay but but yeah basically so you know like everybody else during that period um I was shaken up at the beginning, you know, the sense of not knowing what's going to happen, I think was uh, causing me a great deal of anxiety, especially as an independent photographer, not necessarily about, you know, not getting assignments and, and that, but just the sense that I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And it really took me, I think, a couple of months at the beginning of it, or maybe longer to really just kind of actually like meditate and go back into outside the space of the normal reality that I was so used to living every day and going into my own head and trying to pace myself in a different way and learn to deal with time in a very different way and really to, to deal with life in general. In a different way. And I think for me, that period of lockdown and pandemic was absolutely amazing because it really helped me change my philosophy in general and it helped me change as a person. Mm. I'm a lot calmer than I used to be. And I think with that came the process of maybe trying to do work that was slower. Something that's maybe more playful, but also something that's very accessible to me. And cyanotypes were something that I always wanted to do and play with because it seemed really fun and unpredictable. And it's something that as much as you control the process, you also don't really control it very much. Um, so that became something that I was exploring and playing with. So I started to create a series of images um, just from my surroundings. I spent most of lockdown in Egypt with uh, my parents in Cairo. So I was just making images, you know, of day-to-day, -day, very, very boring things. A cup, <laughs> a cup on the table, a sunset, you know, things that were very accessible and they were just there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then on the side, I was also exploring and making some of these cyanotypes. And again, it was part of this process of slowing down 
Can you explain, sorry to interrupt, can you explain the cyanotypes or what that is? Um, So cyanotypes are basically images where um, you develop the images uh, in in sunlight. I don't know how old the process is, but I know it's really old. hmm. So um, you basically work with um, some sort of chemical that you put on paper and then you leave the paper outside in the sun and you can put something on it. Sometimes you'll see people put like leaf or something on the paper and leave it out in the sun to develop and depends how long you leave it. Then when you take it, wash it onto water and then you wash the chemical off and leave it to dry. And then you have an image um, and they're typically blue. So when whenever you see like a bluish image, mm-hmm. then you know that that's a cyanotype. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a very beautiful process. And also the color blue is very different for me because I'm more of a warm, my, my color palette generally in my work, you'll notice it's very warm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Blue is not a color that ever really comes in. So I started to work actually with the warm images that I was taking and setting them in contrast with these uh, blue cyanotypes that I was creating. So it became almost about the external space and the internal mm-hmm. um, space, my own frame of mind, but also what I was seeing outside and how the color blue became this really peaceful color for me, a color that I escaped to to find, um, you know, a sense of expanded time and a way to let go of any sense of anxiety that I was feeling at the time. So, you know, like all my work, um, it's very personal. And I think all work Mm -hmm. is personal, but I'm hope, but I think it's also quite general. I mean, specifically with that, it's the moment that the entire world shares, um, so I think there's something quite unifying. There's a sense of mm-hmm. solidarity in it as well. Yeah. So so you said, yeah, sorry, and then I, I probably misunderstood that it was already released. So, but you're it is you're close to release, or you're you're close to publishing it. Is it is the project in a sense complete? Um, the project the is book? complete. The okay. book is ready to go. The design is ready. I've just seriously had some problems with publishing it because. Every time I've had a publisher, then something happened that didn't materialize. So again, I'm thinking I'm going to do it on my own, which I'm, I'm fully, you know, I'm, I'm happy to do that. Mm-hmm. Not easy, but I already know the process because right. I've self-published like three or four books so far. Um, but again, like um, I wanted to collaborate with somebody, but that didn't materialize. So if there's any book publishers listening that might be yeah. interested. <laughs> Please contact Laura. <laughs> yeah, but yes. otherwise, um, the goal now is to release it uh, sometime next year because also being okay. based in London, I usually work with a team in Holland and that's become a bit tricky after Brexit mm-hmm. with shipping and customs. Mm. It's just become really problematic. Mm. So I was trying to work with a publisher here in the UK and that Okay. Or like a, even like a printer um, mm. has proved a bit different. Mm. But I'll make mm. it happen. You know, my th- my yeah. ethos is um, <laughs> if you really believe in it, you're going to find a yeah. way to make it happen. You're going to make, it, make happen. it happen. So we'll see yeah. it next year for sure. Yes. <laughs> That's yes. great. Um, so, so besides of doing long-term projects, Laura, so you create books, you, you do exhibitions, you work on commissions, you're actually also a Canon ambassador. You mm-hmm. also noticed you, you do motion and video. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I actually did notice um, that your motion projects are paralleling some of your long-term projects, including there's one called In the Shadows of the Pyramids. Mm-hmm. And, and you know I think others are also 
available as motion as well as um, obviously in, in your still uh, as your so-called, well, I guess we can call them still projects. Um, yeah. yeah, can you just tell me more about your work in motion and maybe the, those parallels as well? Well, way before um, I even went into computer science, what I really wanted to do was to be a film director. Mm. Um, because in Egypt, you know, we have a, a very uh, strong or long legacy with filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I always grew up watching Egyptian cinema. I could tell you by watching a film, just from seeing the style of the directing, who the director was. Mm. And that's really what I wanted to do. So I think I always had a passion for, for storytelling in the film format. And then when I ended up doing photography, um, I always want to challenge myself and do something different. So even when you look at my projects, you'll never see that I do the same that I continue with the same language from one project to the next. It's really important for me that the visual language reflects the spirit of the work rather than me just coming and arriving with a certain way of telling a story and forcing it on that narrative. Um, I think it's important to let the work, the actual issue itself, speak in a particular way that mm-hmm. relevant to that, if that makes sense. And in that in that same way i really like to challenge myself to see what i can do and how it, you know the extent of how far i can say it um do i include audio do i not include audio do I include a video do i not and video is something that is very very exciting video and audio for me are very exciting and um the challenge is how do i extend my skills language into a language that Still works in video that you could tell it's it's the same it's the same author because mm-hmm. I think it's important to have authorship in the world. Um, so that's been challenging for me, but it's also been very exciting. And I'm more, I'm doing more and more video work. So I just did a hmm. commission with Water Aid in Malawi this year, and there's been there's there's a video element to it. I shot a lot of video that we're going to put together, and I also part of the commission I did in the UK. Um, oh, looking at farming and impact of Brexit and COVID. I also did a small video for that. So I'm always really looking to explore video, and I think video is very, very powerful. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a different way of of narrating a story, especially when you can also bring the voice of people right in in the story yeah. as well. Because I could I could say so much with my own photograph. But at the end of the day, it's not all about me. You know, I bring mm-hmm. I bring the visuals, but it's really important right. that people's voices heard as well. Mm-hmm. And are you so with video, right? That comes the whole. Well, you just mentioned it. The audio, of course, is one is a big piece, and then the other is the the editing. Is that mm-hmm. something you you venture into yourself as well? Have you learned how to studied how to do that? Um, yeah, I have. Um, I have learned. I mean, the other I've done some work for many years as a video, uh, as a TV producer and editor. So I oh, know, okay. Okay. I know my way around um, oh, okay. editing and and scripting and stuff like that. Okay. Um. So that's always been good because although yep. it's a different, it's a different line of work, but it provides me some skills that I can marry into my own yep. photography. Yeah. Um, but audio is very interesting. I love going out and looking for audio and recording it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so it's so much fun for me. I absolutely yep. love it. Yep. Um, editing, I have collaborated with people before. So if there's certain okay. things that I feel that I don't have the skills to 
created, then I will collaborate in the same way that I collaborate with a book designer because yep. I know what I want the book to say, but I don't know how to put it together. And, mm -hmm. um, and I think collaboration is very important and it's, it's very exciting for me as well um, to do that and collaborate yep. with somebody to build something together. Yep. So we are recording this podcast in mid-November 2022, and the year is shockingly almost over. <laughs> um, <laughs> so what are you looking forward to in 2023? Um, I'm looking forward to uh, more collaborations um, with, you know, people, institutions, whatever that we see things eye to eye and we have like a positive vision of, of doing things that, you know, will hopefully add something good to the world. Um, I don't, I'm not somebody that really plans very far ahead. I like to take things mm -hmm. as they come mm -hmm. and I'm very grateful for things as they come. So I can't really tell you what specific things more than that. I do know that yep. I'm working on two books potentially um i think two i won't say three because i think there's a lot that i have heard but hopefully two book releases next year hmm. um an exhibition um in march in london mm. that might hopefully travel and nice. um just whatever else might come you know and mm -hmm. uh, just new new collaborations new projects new initiatives mm -hmm. uh, all of oh. that so i know it's quite vague no, no, no. This is good. I, um, <laughs> it's a great answer. Um, I, I like that too. And, and, you know, sometimes we, yeah, it, it's good to be planful, but also you don't, sometimes there can be too much too. Yeah. I want <laughs> to be humble as well. Yeah. I want to be humble as well. Yes. And I exactly. want to put yeah. some certain expectations for myself to work towards, but I also want to let the universe, um, yep. do whatever it wants to do. Yeah, and then you stay a little more in the moment too, which is probably a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I want to go back a little bit, and and I want to be first of all sensitive to your time, also. But I I have a couple more questions. Um, mm -hmm. But I want to go back into the bookmaking process because mm -hmm. I I do think, um, yeah. I mean, obviously, you do have now by now a lot of experience, and and you know, for those of us who maybe also be you know somewhat experienced photographers it is just something that you know is can be very inspiring but at the same time also can be quite daunting <laughs> um, and so i was just kind of curious based on you know your journey we talked a little bit about this already but but i guess my question is you know if you have any any tips of you know if somebody maybe um, wants to you know create maybe even a small body of work and in book format what what are some of the things that you know you learned and can maybe you know um advise us on <laughs> sure yeah i'm always happy to talk about um about bookmaking but i think the two really key things to ask at the very very beginning of the process are why a book and how mm -hmm. a book and if you can have a really confident um, answer to both of these questions then i think you're on the right track so why a book um why is it important for you to make a book is it about um ego is it about personal closure is it because it's the body of work that you really feel 
is important in this particular moment? Is it about migration? Is it about climate change? You know, is it about something political? Is it about abortion? You know, why? Why mm -hmm. is a very important question. And then the next big question is how? So how are you going to make a book in an atmosphere where most uh, book publishers, so that's the traditional path to bookmaking, will ask you to pay for the book? Mm -hmm. Do you have the money? Um, uh, do you have the connections? Um, do you have a good body of work that you think will be convincing for book publishers because they see so many projects and it's so competitive? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. if you don't want to go down the book publishing route, then you want to self-publish it. and you know what self-publishing means are you ready to take on being the publisher the funder the distributor the promoter you know the person that deals with the problems after sales problem you know are you ready to take on all these things so i think these are questions that you have to be very honest with yourself about and i i admit that when i took on in the shadow of the pyramids the in 2015 i did have a good answer for why uh, but I wasn't so sure about how, because hmm. I initially thought I would work with a publisher and then that changed and I had to self-publish. So it shifted in the beginning. So things can shift, but I just think that you, you need to be very honest with yourself. And if you think it's about your ego, then you need to be very honest about that well with yourself. Mm -hmm. And maybe, um, maybe it's just not, not enough to do All that. Right. And I think it's really important also to do your research. So I just came back from Perifoto a couple of days ago, and there's no better place to research bookmaking mm -hmm. than a place like an art fair like Perifoto and Polycopies and seeing all the books that are on display, seeing the Aperture Book Awards, the books that are shortlisted, the quality of the book, what's it made of, who published it, who designed it, the paper, the book cover, what the work is about, you know, because you're going to be bringing a book into that world. So you need to know what that world is about. Otherwise, you can't really go into it blindly. So doing that research is important. And I know Perry Photo is not accessible to a lot of people. A lot of people, like I met some people in Egypt from Egypt, and they were like, well, yeah, but we don't have this sort of resource there. But right. you could look stuff up online. You know, most, most mm -hmm. booksellers will have a video of the book online, and they'll tell you what it's about. So there's ways to do the research if you can't physically be there. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, once you've answered these questions and you're on your road to making a book, um, it's really important to, again, ego is something I'm going to talk about because ego mm -hmm. does come across a lot, especially in collaborations. Yep. And when you're collaborating with people, then it's not all about you. It's also about the vision of others that you've invited to join you on that journey. So you need to be... Um, What's the, what's the word? You need to be assertive, but you also need to respect others and you need to learn how to articulate things in a particular way that says what you want to say, but doesn't like disrespect others or doesn't mm -hmm. take away from what they're offering um, in the project. And these are things that I, I also learned in the process of collaborations. It's like working, like at a relationship in general, you are in a relationship with this mm -hmm. thing you're working on. And it's about making certain compromises, but also certain things that, you know, it's a line. You're not going to compromise on that. And this is the way that I really want it to be. Mm -hmm. um, and I think when you work with a team that believes in your vision um, and you believe in theirs as well, then there's that mutual respect and trust. Trust is at the center of it. Yep. And if there's trust, then that's going to resolve everything.
Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to choose the right people to work with, um, to believe in them, but for them to also believe in you and in the work. And if you have these things, it's really going to resolve a lot of problems down mm-hmm. the line. Um, so yeah, and I mean, there's so much more I could say about funding, you know, and making money. And I have to say that right now there's so many opportunities to fund books, like grants for bookmaking and things that there's a lot more now than there were back in the day when I was first publishing in 2015. So I think there's a lot of opportunity to make a book now mm-hmm. um, that you, you don't have to do it on your own. And you also right. don't have to do a very expensive book. You know, you could do a beautiful book that is not very expensive, but that really still, um, that is still very strong. And I mean, when you talk to people who are book collectors, they don't go to books just because it's the most expensive and most beautifully made book. They go to the book because of what's inside it, because of the story, because of what the photographer or the artist brought in the book. And it could be printed on newspaper, on tissue paper, on whatever it is. (laughs) But it offers that and it does it in a very assertive, confident way. So Mm -hmm. I think bookmaking is really, really exciting. And to be honest with you, it really excited me about photography because after Mm -hmm. the shadow of the pyramids i felt a bit exhausted and i was wondering if i even have anything else that i could say photographically but after making that book it it you know it opened up the opportunity for me to express things in a in a different way and Mm -hmm. the book form became really really exciting for me Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah uh, i don't know i mean i hope that was enough no this is a wonderful wonderful answer and also about what, I loved what you said about the collaboration and the trust and respect. I think that, I mean, that's generally true, right? Working in teams. I think it's mm-hmm. so critical. Um, and and it also kind of leads a little bit into, so you, you're also doing work as a mentor. So, <laughs> so kind yeah. of um, maybe we can weave this in a little bit here um, because you, you answered this, this question so eloquently. But I, yeah, I want to just keep, I'm curious, Maybe if you can talk about this a little bit more, you know, your your mentorship work. Yeah, I do um, a lot of teaching and mentorship, which is, to be honest with you, something I never thought I'd be doing quite to the degree that I'm doing now, because Mm. I didn't really think I was very good at articulating my experiences in a way that could then benefit other people. But I think the more you do something, the better you get at it. So I think I'm, I'm, you know, um, I really enjoy mentorships, but it's also like a two-way street because yes. I get a lot from it too. I, I yep. learn and I'm challenged uh, and I get to think and I have to answer questions and I have to give references. So it really keeps me on my feet um, yep. and I really love that. But I also love the fact that you're giving uh, because, you know, life is not just about taking. Right. So I really like the fact that I'm giving part of and sharing part of my experience with people and hopefully helping them in moving their career forward and you know whether they want to create a book or they're working on a particular project or they're thinking about an exhibition that i can help them in shaping that in in one way or another um so it's been really really exciting for me and i've learned so much from it and i've grown so much from that process um so it's it's definitely been a two-way street and i think I, I think I, I do it more now just because I realize like how good it is for me and for my process as well mm-hmm. um, in what I do. And so are your mentees 
so typically would they be other photographers who as you mentioned may may have an exhibit or they might they're thinking about book publishing or is it is it a spans a broad range <laughs> yeah it definitely spans a broad range so um i'm currently working with um 11 people from around the world who wow. are all some are professional some are professional photographers some are young photographers who are still studying but also doing program with me some are not professional photographers at all but they really are committed to a particular project that they want to explore so they're at very different levels and that's very very exciting mm -hmm. um, i also worked with somebody that's not a professional photographer he's actually a professional scientist Hmm. But he wanted to create his first book, so we worked together for a few years towards that, and he did eventually publish a really beautiful book. Hmm. Um, so it really depends on what people want um, mm -hmm. to achieve. I also work, you know, I do different things because part of being Canon, Canon's involved in a lot of parts around the world, but yep. I'm an ambassador for the Middle East, Africa, Europe, so I get to work with a lot of people in the region about things like how to create a portfolio, how to hmm um how to how to apply for grants uh how to um what was the, your unique vision how to create yep. a unique vision as a photographer what does that even mean mm -hmm. but you know so so all sorts of stuff so mm -hmm. i work with people at all different levels mm. oh wonderful so um before we wrap up a couple more <laughs> I, I hope easy questions <laughs> sure um so I have a rare technical question, and I, I will not ask about the camera, <laughs> um, although we know it might be Canon. <laughs> um, but do you have a favorite focal length, actually? That's actually my, my question for your work. Is, is there, do, do you tend to gravitate to a certain focal length in your work? That's a really interesting question. I, um, I don't believe so. No, I don't think okay. I have a particular one. I think. Uh, I do things differently, but it seems like mostly if I have the option, I will be on like a lower um, f-stop, like 2.8 or lower. But mm -hmm. I also do other experimental work where I'm on a, during the day, for example, where I'm on a very high shutter speed. What am I trying to say here? No, I'm on a very high focal length, mm -hmm. a low shutter speed because I want to capture some movement. Yep. yep. So I do... I do different things, um, and I, I play around a lot. And most of the time, if you ask me, I won't really know what I'm on <laughs> particularly. Yep. I mean, I shoot manual, so I set yep. everything as yep. I'm going along. But it really depends on the image that I'm trying to create in that moment. Got it. Yeah, that, no, that's a great answer. So it sounds like you're, well, you, you might be seeing something in the moment, and you're kind of then experimenting a little bit yeah, in the moment Yeah, the moment well. decides yep. Yep. the focal length. Yep, got it, got it. All right, and then so before we wrap up, my final question is: Where can people best find you online? <laughs> yeah, I think the um, my website, so okay. Uh I'm also on Instagram, but I have an interesting relationship with social media, where I'll come and sometimes I'll, you know, be posting a lot, and then I'll take a break from it as well. I'm also on Twitter, but mostly just retweeting or sharing some thoughts about certain things that i heard from my students or you know uh, something that i've come across or a particular frustration that i might have so i try to engage with both instagram and twitter 
okay. um, in very different ways. Okay. And I've, there's links to both on. Okay, wonderful. Yeah, and we'll link to that in, in our show note, notes as well, of course, and some of the projects we discussed. So, wonderful. Thank so, you. Well, Laura, thanks so much for speaking with me today. It was really a pleasure. Really enjoyed our conversation and, and learning more about your journey. Thank you for having me and for being interested in, um, in my journey and in, in what I have to say. I'm really grateful for that. This wraps up our episode and conversation with Laura El Tantawi. We'll link to her website and social media links, as always, in the show notes. Thanks so much for all the support. Thanks so much for listening and talk to you next time.